You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Hey, good morning, friends. Um, My name is Zach, and I serve on the Connections team here. And today I'll be reading through Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. Um, So if y'all would open your Bibles with me. Um, And if you do not have a Bible, there's going to be one uh, underneath the seat back in front of you. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place uh, of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, the both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, brother. Church family, good to see you here this morning. I hope you're doing well. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here at Northway, glad you're with us. Genesis 22, as we just read, where we're at this week as we continue our study in the book of Genesis, and we have got a whopper of a text this morning. And uh, specifically, uh, as we are framing out the end of Abraham's life, we've been studying this man that God chose from Ur of the Chaldeans and called to a new land, and we've been studying this man um, and his faith journey here. And uh, as we enter into the text here this morning, uh, we're coming towards the end of his life. His wife is going to die and be buried next week in chapter 23. Uh, He will die and be buried in chapter 25. We are near the end of his life. And I want to show you in this text what one scholar calls Abraham's final exam that's going to happen right here. Uh, Many of you are in final exams right now. If you're a student in here, maybe you're heading into final exams in the weeks to come, or you're already there right now. We all know what final exams are. They're basically taking everything we've neglected to learn for the last semester or the last year, cramming it all into one night, 
and just trying to get by the next day. But this particular exam is part of a long history for, for Abraham. Remember back in chapter 12, God first called him out of Ur to a new land and promised to bless him and to provide for him, even though he was old in age and his wife was barren, to provide for him a miracle child, a miracle son in whom this line would continue and there'd be multitudes of offspring and one of those offspring would find the whole earth be blessed through that offspring. And now what we've seen is over the last 25 years was the testing of Abraham as to how much he believed that God would be faithful to those promises. And finally, chapter 21, we saw probably the main promise of all those promises come true in the miracle birth of Isaac, his son. God had fulfilled that promise. And now it doesn't say it here, but the time between chapter 21 and the time between chapter 22 It's probably somewhere, scholars estimate, 15 to 25 years have passed now. Um, His son Isaac is not just a little boy in this text. He's growing into a man here. And there is one final test that God has for Abraham to prove what's really in him, in his faith. And I'll just tell you, if you are a Christian in this room this morning, there are a lot of electives that you can choose to sign up for, to enhance your faith. But there is one course in God's curriculum that is no elective, it is a requirement. And it is for every single one of us. And that is the testing of our faith through hardship, through suffering. No one is exempt from that. That's not a course we can clep out of. It is a requirement in God's curriculum. James tells us as much in James chapter one, When he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Did you see what James called testing? Or what he called trials? He called it testing. And in the old English, The word for testing simply means to prove. Peter even picks up on this language in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that, and note the word, the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see what Peter called testing? Proof. It is what evidences your faith. We can say that we believe God all day long. We can say that we trust God all day long. But that belief, that trust is not validated until it is confronted in the acid bath of reality called life and suffering, and hardship. And the same is true for Abraham in this text, where after finally receiving the promise he had longed for for so long in the birth of Isaac, and after now enjoying Isaac for maybe 15 to 25 years, he is now called to go give that promise up. Now, as we enter into this text, 
I think there's two goals, two main objectives that I, I believe the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to see in this text. One of those is to consider our own faith in God in light of what we're meant to see in Abraham's faith here in this text. And I think the other is that we might walk away seeing the, that this story is pointing to an ultimate story that is found in Jesus Christ and God's provision for our sins. Now, let's begin with just the idea of faith here, this final exam, see what we can glean here even for ourselves. Verse one, after these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Obviously, y'all, this is an unbelievably horrific request. And I think for two reasons. One, for who it is that's requesting it. God? And then also, what it meant for the one who is receiving this command, Abraham. Now, at first glance, we're thinking, is this really God? Is this really Yahweh who is requesting this? We might go, I thought he was different than all the, all the other so-called gods of the surrounding nations, different from that of, say, Molech, Molech who uh, was offering up commanding child sacrifice as an act of worship. I thought Yahweh was different. I thought God was different than those so-called gods. And I think, in fact, what you're going to see in this text is that it is, he is different. This entire text, this is exactly what this text is trying to show us. Later, when God gives his word to his people, when he gives his law to his people in Leviticus 18, he is going to absolutely forbid child sacrifice as the rest of the nations were doing it. He will consider it an abomination. God's people are not to do this. But as we'll see in a moment, what God is doing, he's proving in this text to be the exact opposite of those gods of the surrounding nations. He is not a God who demands that his own people be sacrificed. What you'll see in this text, he is the God who provides a substitute so that we ourselves don't have to. That's what we're meant to see in this text. So no, this is not a sacrifice. This is a test and it's a unique test whereby God is going to prove Abraham's faith in the promises of God that he has enjoyed for the last 15 to 25 years. And now he's being asked to give this child up. And let's just for a moment consider what that would be like to be Abraham in this moment, to have this request of you. Like I can't even fathom this as a dad. And even if you're not a parent, just Imagine yourself in that situation. This one thing, and maybe there's some of you who can relate in other unique ways. This one thing that you have waited for your entire life. You have prayed for, you have asked for, you have trusted for, and then you finally receive it and oh, the joy of having it. And then no sooner after you've obtained it, you're asked to lay it down. It's exceedingly painful. And this from the same God who said this was the promise. And so this is a hard thing to do. But what we see here 
is again that this is a test, and this is a test that is actually meant to bookend the life of Abraham that we've seen thus far. The very first test came in chapter 12 when God called Abraham out of Ur to go to a new land. That test was asking Abraham to lay down his past and to trust God with where he was calling him. This test at the other end of his life in chapter 22, he's not being asked to let go of his past, he's being asked to let go of his future and to trust God that God is gonna meet him in it. But here's what we're meant to see. As shocking as it is that God would ask this to us in verse three and following, it's even more shocking that Abraham would actually obey without even questioning. Notice his immediate obedience. Verse three, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. So Abraham immediately obeys. God asked him to do this and the next morning he's on. Now, where he's heading to is Mount Moriah. I want to show you this picture here of just what his viewpoint would have looked like from where he was at. He's down in the desert at Beersheba um, in the southern Negev of Israel. And he's told to go to Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is one of four mountains that are clustered together in the Judean mountain range that will one day make up the city of Jerusalem. This is where he's being called to go, 50 miles northeast of Beersheba. In that day, the average uh, person traveling by foot in a caravan could make about 15 to 20 miles a day. So this is about a three-day journey. It's a lot of time for a dad to contemplate how in the world he is going to give up his only son at the request of the very God who first promised him. Now, verse five actually gives us some color into what he believed, what Abraham believed was going to happen as he made his way to Mount Moriah. You see this in verse five. Then Abraham said to his young men, I want you to stay over here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you again. Now, This is interesting right here. Do you notice the language? Notice we, so he's at base camp. He's about to ascend up to the top to build the altar. He says to the other two men, y'all wait here. We are going over here to worship and we will return. So here's what we know that Abraham knows in this moment. Number one, God has promised a miracle son to me in whom all the nations are going to be blessed. And I know that son is not Ishmael. That son is not Eleazar, the servant. That son is not Lot, the nephew. Why? Because I've tried all three of those as a request to God to make them be the son and they're not. The promised son is Isaac. I know this for sure. But secondly, I know that God has called me to give his life up. Those are two seemingly contradictory facts. So Abraham believes 
unless God is a liar, which he has yet to prove himself to be in this entire journey, then Abraham believes there has got to be another miracle in store. That's the only way to reconcile these two things. Now, it's interesting. The author of Hebrews actually tells us, gives interpretive insight on exactly what he was thinking. Listen to this, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the very act of offering up his own son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen to this, verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so listen to that. Abraham's only conclusion is this. God has been 100% faithful to me my entire life. He has never forsaken me, even though I have forsaken him hundreds of times. He has never been forsaking of me. So he is good. He can be trusted. I know this. And he has promised this son is the way by which all my other descendants will come. So this son's got to live. He's got to be married. He's going to have his own kids. And the descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. And all the earth is going to be blessed by one of the descendants that will come through him. I know this to be true. So if he's asking me to give him up, the only conclusion that can reconcile these seemingly contradictory requests is that somehow, in some way, God is going to raise this child back to life and give him back to me. And we're going back down this hill together. So his concrete trust in the character and the promises of God is what allowed him to obey no matter the cost. Now, let me pause right here for just a moment. Let's do some self-examination on our own faith in very hard situations. Some of you right now are no doubt walking through a test, but you may not know it. Now, James is clear that God does not tempt us, but he does test us. God is not the author of evil, he does not allow evil into your life so that he can mess with you and help you de deconstruct your faith and rebel and compromise and walk away. God is not that author, but he will in his sovereignty allow evil for a purpose greater than you can see so that in this trial, in this testing, your faith can be further forged and further formed so that your dependency upon God will be greater at the end of it than when you went into it. It is unmistakably clear in scripture, this is what God uses testing for. God loves you. God wants what is best for you. He may not give you all your wants, but he surely will not neglect your needs. And he wants to prove and to form your faith. And so he is willing to allow you to walk through something difficult right now, asking that you would trust and obey him no matter the cost. Some of you right now might find yourself in a relationship that you shouldn't be in. That you are with someone right now in a dating relationship and that person is not God's best for you. And I think in your core, you know it. 
and that person is leading you not towards God, but away from God and towards compromise, and you're having a hard time ending that relationship right now because you're in fog. And there is a fear, if you're honest with yourself, that if I separate from this or I call this to a higher standard, that I might lose said person and I might end up being alone. And I fear that more than even what I'm in in this relationship right now. And you're gonna have to trust God. What does his word have to say concerning this situation of who you're to be and what kind of relationship he has designed for you? And what does faith look like for you in this moment to trust him that he's not gonna drop the ball on you for obeying him? Maybe some of you right now, you're in a hard situation in your job. Maybe you're considering a job that's coming. Maybe you're already in a job right now where it is lending towards you taking shortcuts and compromises. Maybe for some of you that have families, this particular job, it's a great opportunity for you to climb that proverbial ladder and make more income, but it is costing your family dearly. And you're having to discern, what would God's word inform me? If I were to obey the Lord in righteousness in this, and maybe I lose this job, can I trust him? Can I trust him that he's got something better for me, even if it comes with a cost? There may be some of you in here right now, I don't want to act like there may not be in this room, who are find yourself in an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy. This fear has set in that this child is going to ruin my life. I'm not in a position to take care of this. And you are considering terminating that child, even in the face of God's clear word that that child is not an accident, even if it was sin that led to it. That that child is made in the image of God and worth the dignity of life. And God is wanting to show you by the counsel of his word that he can be trusted right now. He's gonna walk with you through this, that there is a plan for you in this that you can't comprehend right now, but God is gonna show you, he's gonna take you there if you trust him. How would God's word counsel and inform you in that trial? And then what does faith look like for you to trust him in obedience? Maybe some of you are walking through a loss or a tragedy right now. You can't believe that God would allow this to happen in the sting of death, the sting of pain, God's purpose is in it, according to his word, is not to lead you to walk away from him and to distrust him, but to run towards him, that he is sufficient for you in the midst of this loss. He's got you. He's not going to drop the ball on you. There is a plan in this, even though you cannot see it now. What would God's word counsel you in the midst of the lament and the grief? And what does faith look like for you to trust him in moving forward? Maybe for some of you, it's a a move that you're considering right now and the Lord is assigning or reassigning a new uh, transfer for you somewhere and, and he knows you're, he's taking that but you don't want to leave. You're afraid of what's going to leave behind. What does it look like to trust him, to know that he's already ahead of you. He's already going to be there for you. When you get there, he's going to provide for you. He's going to take care of you. That's the good father that he is. How would God's word counsel you in the midst of it? And what does faith look like for you in that situation? I don't know. There's a a thousand other scenarios going on in this room. And the question is, how would God's word counsel me in this situation? And what does faith require of me to trust my God and to follow him 
no matter what I may lose in it. You're in a fog. If God is asking you to follow him, to heed his word in full faith, knowing it's hard, knowing you don't, you don't have all the answers in front of you, but this is where the character of God is inextricably linked to the promises of God. And because we believe that God is good and because we believe that God is sovereign, then we can confess with the sons of Korah in Psalm 8411, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He's not holding out on you. You can trust by obeying him, he will withhold no good thing. If he thought this was good for you, he would keep it for you. He would provide it. If he doesn't think this is good for you, he's not going to allow it. He's, he's not going to withhold, though, anything good from you. But you're going to have to trust him all the way to the end. You do the right thing in faith and you trust God with the results. You see, this is what James was trying to show us, by the way. James gives us some insight into Abraham. And he tells us that Abraham's faith was proved by his obedience. James chapter 2, 21 to 22. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. You go, wait a minute, I thought Abraham was justified by faith. Back in chapter 15, absolutely he was. He believed and it was credit to him as righteousness. But James is asking the other side of that coin right here, how do we know that his faith was real? How do we know it wasn't just lip service? Answer, chapter 22. James is saying, you show me what you do and I'll show you what you believe. You show me your actions and I'll show you the faith that's driving those actions. You can say you have faith in God all day long, but the way it is proven to be true is when you step out and act on it. So Abraham, believing that God will provide somehow in some way, no matter what it may cost him in the meantime, he obeys. You see this in verses six and following. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and, set, and laid him on the, on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So indeed he passed 
the test. He passed the test. This whole time, this last 25, 50 years has been leading up to this constant stumbling forward in faith, learning to trust God, that God is faithful and he trusts him even in this moment. And God provides. And I love this, verse 13. And so Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I love this. He could have named this place anything. He could have named it, I obeyed. He could have named it Isaac Submitted. He could have named it anything here, but you know what he names it? He names it Jehovah Jireh. The Lord provides. That is what is at the core of Abraham's belief. It's not on the amount of faith that he's had, the quality of faith that he's had. It's on the object of his faith. It's not about me. It's about him. And I know what he will provide. No matter what is promised, no matter what is demanded of me, my God will provide. And because I trust him, I will obey him. And so as a result, the Lord now doubles down on the same promises that he gave back in chapter 12 and has been on repeat these last 35, 50 years. He says in verse 15, the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven And said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Did you catch that? I will bless you. I will give you offspring and I will give you this land to your descendants as a possession. Land, seed, blessing. The same categorical promises he had been giving all along. And now in verse 20, 24, I want to just highlight this for a moment. This seems like such a random text at the end of this story, but it's anything but random. Verse 20, after these things, it was told to Abraham. So some messenger comes and delivers this news to Abraham, says, behold, Milcah has also born children to your brother Nahor. That seems so wild. He just gets done, nearly takes his son's life, has just substituted worships God. This is amazing. They come down and news comes to him and says, hey, by the way, you're an uncle. Like, oh, great. Thanks. No, no, you have nephews and nieces now. Isn't this fantastic? Your brother has had children. And he lists them here. And by the way, these are classic names, Uz and Buzz for the first two. And thus Home Alone was born And the children, what's crazy to me is Uz and Buzz are the first two. Why they just didn't keep that little thing going there. 
They deviated. Then you got Chesed and Hasol and Pildash and Jildaf and Bethuel. And by the way, Bethuel, father Rebecca. These eight, Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, uh-oh, his name was Ramah, uh, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Maha. Story ends. What in the world is that doing right there? Now, for the original readers, this would have been helpful because they would know by some of these names that we don't have time to get into here today, would represent some of the peoples that are in the surrounding nations at their present moment. But more importantly, the reason this is here is a bridge between chapter 22 and what's coming in the subsequent chapters. Did you notice the one name on the list that, first of all, you can probably pronounce, and second of all, stands out? Verse 23, did he catch her name? Rebecca. Why is she here? This is Abraham's grandniece. Who is she? We're going to meet her in chapter 24 when she becomes Isaac's wife. And so this promise of God that almost seemed like it was about to die on the altar is now introduced to the very means by which this line will continue with Rebecca. Beautiful. So one of the primary themes that we are meant to see in this text is the faith of Abraham in the invincibility of God's promise. The reason that you can trust God is because he is faithful to his promises. Even when you can't possibly see how, even if it appears there's no way forward, this thing is gonna cost you everything, you know that God will not drop the ball on you. He is good, he is faithful, and he can see what you can't. And he can provide what you can't. So you can trust him and you can obey him. Now, having considered that, we would be at great loss if we closed out these last few minutes without paying attention to the even greater story that's within this story that's pointing us to. The parallels and the prophecy in this text are too clear not to see that this entire text is pointing us to our own substitutionary sacrifice that was given for us, Jesus Christ. The imagery is so strong. Probably already picked up some parallels. The father giving up his one and only son, his beloved son. The son putting the wood on his own back and carrying it up the hill to the place of sacrifice. The three-day journey that's there. There is no question, and this is no coincidence, that the substitutionary sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is in view here. I want you to notice a few things in this text. Notice the wording in verse two. Take your son, your only son, your beloved son, and offer him up. It is hard to read that and not think of John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever would believe in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Listen to the words of the Lord again in verse 12 in this text. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You can't read that and not help think of Paul's words in Romans 8, 32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Notice the location of the sacrifice in verse two. Verse two, Mount Moriah. Now I mentioned earlier, it's believed this is the particular mountain that the future location of Jerusalem will be built. Now there is debate here. Some scholars view the word Moriah translated differently. Maybe it's in other areas and speculation there, but most cannot help but see throughout the scriptures that this is indeed that place that is the future Jerusalem. And I want you to think about this. I've got a few things that lead me to that conclusion. Notice in verse 14, when Abraham names the place Jehovah-Jireh, Moses inserts a quoted phrase. Remember, Moses is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Moses exists 500 years after the events took place here. But as he's writing, he inserts this quoted phrase that even to this day, for 500 years, this place has been known as, and quote, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. What is the it that shall be provided? It is substitutionary sacrifice. This saying that Moses quotes here was both a declaration that had been handed down for the last 500 years in association with this place, but it was also a prophetic anticipation of what would come to this mountain. Because you know what? 2 Chronicles 3.1 tells us that a thousand years later, Solomon, David's son, would build the temple of the Lord on Mount Moriah in this very spot. A thousand years later, this will be the place where the Levitical sacrificial system would take place, whereby the sins of the people would be conferred upon a substitutionary animal, just like the ram in this story, who will die in their place on the altar so that their sins could be forgiven, their debts could be paid. Now that was never meant to be a permanent solution. Hebrews 10 tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never permanently atone for sin. And that is why a thousand years after Solomon built that temple, on that same mountain range, just west from where that temple mount is, God would fully and finally demonstrate his own love by sending his own son, the final payment, Jesus Christ, who would die on a cross at Calvary, who would give his life as a ransom for many, fully paying the wage that our sin demanded, which was death and giving us forgiveness in its place. All of that happened right here on this mountain. It is no coincidence to me. This text is prefiguring what God had purposed all along. Today, this is what Mount Moriah looks like. Show you these pics. Before and after. A little bit's changed. Looks like Dallas. If you take up the old pics, can't even tell what I'm looking at anymore. But when you look at that top pick, what you have left on top of this mountain is what's left of the Jewish temple mount. Solomon had built his temple. Herod later on tricked it out and built out this big uh, mount platform for it to be on. You can still see the platform, that long brick wall going up, stone wall. It's all that's left. The temple used to be on top of it where that gold dome is. It's not there anymore. 70 AD, it was destroyed. Why? 
Not just because the Romans took it out, but because God had already sent his one and final sacrifice. There is no more sacrifices. We don't need another sacrificial system. Jesus paid in full. Now, what happens now? What's standing there now? The Dome of the Rock. It was built about a thousand years after Jesus by the Muslims who came in. Why is that there? One, because their story claims it wasn't Isaac who was sacrificed, it was Ishmael. And so let's cover up this spot. It's a cover-up story. And they also believe this is where Muhammad ascended from this very top of this mountain. And so it is now the Dome of the Rock. But the truth is, it was never about Ishmael. It was never even about Isaac. It was never even about the sacrificial system. It was always pointing to God's own son, Jesus Christ, who came to give up his life so that we could be forgiven. Now I got time for one last little thing I want to show you that I think is just incredibly interesting. I want you to pay attention to the angel of the Lord who is speaking in this text. Verse 11 says that the angel of the Lord spoke from heaven. So it wasn't right there, just speaking from heaven. Verse 12 says, because you have not withheld your own son from who? Me. Whoever this angel of the Lord is, is equating himself with God. Then you see in verse 15 and 16, the angel of the Lord speaks a second time, makes an oath and swears by his own name. Hebrews 6 tells us the reason that humans and angels can't swear by our own names is because we got to have somebody bigger than us. We, we can't swear our own names. That's why we say, I swear on my dead mother's grave. We have to do something crazy in order to emphatically prove that we're telling the truth. When God swears, he doesn't have to do that. There is no higher name, so he swears by his own name. This angel of the Lord swears by his own name. He's equating himself with God. Now, verse 17 goes on to say, the angel of the Lord says, I will bless you. And again, equating himself with God. So this angel is not a mere angel. You know who I think this angel is? And I can be wrong. It's okay. Secondary issue here. I think this is the pre-incarnate second member of the triune God, Jesus Christ. An angel simply means messenger. There are people are called, even given the term angel in scriptures, when referring to them as a messenger. Whenever you see in the Old Testament, it describes an angel of the Lord. It's describing an angelic being from the angelic realm. But whenever you see the angel of the Lord, I believe that is describing Jesus Christ, the second member of the triune God. And you see this all throughout scripture, these little cameos. It's like Stan Lee constantly making cameos in all the Marvel movies where the author writes himself into the script. This is what Jesus does all throughout the Old Testament. These appearances, these Christophanies, it's the same here. And if that's true, if indeed this is Jesus himself, how much more beautiful does this text become? And whereas right as one father is about to offer up his own son on this mountain, our Lord Jesus Christ cries out from heaven and says, stop. Don't have to do this. God the Father will provide a substitute for you, not only right now with this ram, but one day with a lamb on this very mountain 
will be sacrificed for you, will shed his own blood for you, Abraham, in your place, Abraham, so that you don't have to. That is how all the nations will be blessed by this substitute who will come and give his life on this mountain. And the whole time Jesus is speaking these words to Abraham, he knew it would be himself who would be the one who would be offered up. And you know what the most penetrating question is in this whole text? It's there in verse seven, when Isaac says, where is the lamb? And that is the question the Bible is asking all throughout the Old Testament. Where is the lamb? Who is the one from Genesis three who will come and crush the serpent? Who is the one from Samuel who sit on David's throne? Who is the one from Isaiah 53 who will come and be pierced for our transgressions? And who is the one right here on Mount Moriah who will come and be the lamb for us? It's the question the Bible's asking. And somehow and in some way, Abraham knew that God would provide that lamb. And that is why Jesus said in John chapter eight, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. He was looking down through time. He didn't know exactly how and when it'd come, but he knew the lamb of God would come on this very mountain and offer himself up. And Jesus says, that's me. And it's the reason why John the Baptist was so eager to declare in John 1 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, God loves you with an everlasting love. He has given you his promise that he would provide a substitutionary lamb to pay the penalty that your sin demanded and to forgive you of your sins. And you know what? He did in Jesus Christ. And he has promised that one day he will provide a king who will return who will rule and reign on this earth and make all things new. And you know what? He will. And in the meantime, he has promised that in the waiting, he will walk with you. He will guide you. He will withhold no good thing for you. And yes, even through testing, he will form you into the new creation by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that he has redeemed you to be. And he does. The question is, is will you trust him? Will you follow him? Will you believe that God is who he says he is and he will do what he said he'd do? And would you surrender until he takes you all the way through to the very end and blesses you beyond you can, your, your craziest imagination? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word of encouragement. Thank you that you have withheld no good thing from us. You have given your greatest possession for us. Jesus Christ, your one and only son, how will you then withhold any other good thing from us? You won't. So Lord, would you help us to trust you by faith in our areas of testing right now? Lord, let us look to your word. Let us be anchored by the truth of your counsel. Give us clarity that we need to see in the midst of the fog and then give us courage to step out there and obey you no matter what it may cost us because we know that you will not drop the ball on us. Lord, we pray this for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. 
A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.